0: Hi and welcome. This is Bob Groves uh, and this is another episode in the podcast series Faculty and Research. This week uh, we welcome Dr. Marsha Shadlin, a provost distinguished associate professor of history and African-American Studies at Georgetown. Marcia is a public voice on the history of African-American children, race in America, and social movements. In 2014 Marcia organized her fellow scholars in a social media response to the crisis in Ferguson, Missouri, entitled hashtag Ferguson Syllabus. This project has led to similar initiatives online and has shaped curricular projects in the K to 12 setting, as well as in higher education. In 2015, she published her first book, South Side Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration. Her latest book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, examines the intersection of the post 1968 civil rights struggle and the rise of the fast food industry. This will be published early next year. She's a frequent public speaker, a consultant to educational institutions. She delivers lectures and workshops on inclusive teaching, social movements, and food justice. And she co-hosts her own podcast, The Waves, a podcast on gender, feminism, and popular culture. She's contributed to countless news outlets and organizations in the mainstream media. We are delighted that you agreed to join our little podcast, our modest little podcast. Marcia, thank you for coming.
1: You are welcome.
0: So give us a little insight uh, into how you chose to be a historian. What what was the fascination and and why the academic life uh, with those interests?
1: So my pathway into academia actually started with my undergraduate major in journalism. I was a journalism major at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and it's one of the most competitive journalism schools in the country. And I got there, and I wasn't a very good journalism student. I was a very mediocre student because I loved reporting. I loved writing, but I wanted to write really long stories. And so I would get an assignment to write, you know, 300 words on the city council. And I would say, but shouldn't we start with the founding of the city? Isn't really that the Mm -hmm. angle? And my journalism educators, you know, said, you you know, you're pretty smart, but you're just not very good at this. And so I think what happened was I had this very pre-professional major, and I also had a second major in religious studies. And that really helped me um, enjoy the humanities and the long work of research and it was through an undergraduate research program with my mentor through the McNair Scholars Program which was really designed in was really designed to diversify the professoriate that I was able to see academia as an option and that's what got me to American studies and got me to history today.
0: So so you chose, you chose a profession that allowed you to write long treatises endlessly <laughs> right
1: because I think one of the joys I had growing up as a kid was this is before smartphones and the internet was that to pass time I would just read I would read everything I would read pamphlets if we were at the DMV with my mom I would take the rules of the road book and read about uh, traffic laws in Illinois if we were at the bank I would read the flyers on mortgage rates I just really liked seeing all the things around me and seeing how much I could learn from them and it was that passion of encountering something different and seeing if I could figure it out that led me to really enjoy undergraduate research which was not something that I anticipated when I started college.
0: And it sounds like the McNair Scholar Program with its aim at the professoria, this, this is a quite unusual uh, event for an undergraduate to to, to have that opportunity, a peak inside academia that early in your life.
1: Absolutely, and I think the other way that I entered this profession was through student activism. I went to college in Missouri in the late 1990s where um, student and faculty diversity was abysmal. Um, There were a number of issues around um, Native American property that was held by the university. The university president at the time of the system was on the board of Monsanto, which some really questioned whether that was appropriate for someone who was heading an institution in a state with the kind of agricultural necessities as the state of Missouri. I was in college during this really complex political time and I realized that the university was actually a place where people could respond to these issues and could really work out how do we solve a problem. And so I think understanding the unusual nature of the university and the rare opportunity to dig deep into topics it it matched, I found my match in something that I don't think I even knew was a real career when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. I didn't know people were professors. I guess I knew on television, but I didn't know that was a real job that you could have. And I discovered that it was not only a job you could have, but it's a job in which you could make a difference.
0: So how did this program give you insight into that? I'm I'm interested in how it sparked that aspiration?
1: I think the first thing is its commitment, its namesake is Ronald McNair, who was one of the astronauts in the 1986 Challenger disaster. And he was a Renaissance man. He had grown up um, in the Jim Crow era, had made it to college, made it into um, a PhD program, was a black belt in karate, was just this really intellectually curious person. And his namesake was this program that looked at a cohort of young people who were first-generation college students from backgrounds that traditionally did not enter academia, did not get graduate degrees and say, listen, if someone just shows you what's possible, who knows what could happen? And when I think about other people who have graduated from the McNair program, from just Missouri, you know, faculty at places like Tulane, um, you know, I'm at Georgetown now, I know people who completed law school. It fundamentally changes the profession when we just say, hey, it can be open to whoever desires um, you know, deeper access. And so the things that they did was, the first thing they did was create a research partnership. And that research mentorship with a faculty member who believes in those principles, who gives you an opportunity to learn how to use an archive, how to present at an academic conference, what questions you ask when you apply to a PhD program. I mean, these were things that were not in my sightline at all until this program but the number one thing and this is something that I'm so excited to be able to do now as a faculty member is to spend time with students who have an intellectual curiosity but aren't sure where that's going to take them professionally.
0: Mm-hmm. You were lucky for that program it's I was, so many, I was you know, very lucky And there's so many so many young students who don't have that that insight they're, they're, the world doesn't give them
1: mm-hmm.
0: that glimpse of what their life could be so. But why history? So um, you could, as a, uh, a creative writer, write long things that we call books, too. Why, why history?
1: Well, I think some of it, you know, I, I, I'm clearly drawn to professions where people are very doubtful about your ability to make it. So I went, I finished journalism school at the moment where things um where things shifted. So I I have a degree in magazine journalism, the most specific thing you could imagine. And then within a few years of me leaving college, people learned how to do digital and they learned how to do, you know, new media and how to do live broadcasting, how to do podcasts. If I were a journalism student today, I would have so many more skills than I graduated with. But I knew that writing was important. I knew that communication was the key to helping people understand why something matters in their lives if it wasn't right in front of them. Um, So I, I chose history because I felt like I was engaged in a lot of conversations as a student activist in which history provided the blueprint on how to move forward. So for instance, on our campus we had an issue with hate crimes and we set up as a group of students a hate crimes reporting mechanism and education wing. And the first thing that came to my mind was, well, how did students in the 80s deal with these issues? How did students in the 70s do it? You know, I was really moved by the student activism of the late 1960s, and I always felt like the backstory was what we needed. And the other thing I learned is that for many students who want to make a difference on campus, the way that you approach administrators and faculty is you have to tell a full story. And I think that this is where students sometimes struggle. They talk about the immediate problem, but what I learned was to say, you know, it's interesting that this issue came up in 1985 and we were able to do it this way. Why, after all of this passage of time, are we not able to get around this again? And so I think the way that history allows people to put themselves in a context in which they can make a difference, and I think it makes you a little bit more forgiving because if you believe yourself to be the first person to ever try to solve a problem and you can't you feel really awful but if you feel like you're part of a long history of human struggle I think it helps you become more patient with yourself and with others
0: so go back in time and go to the point where you chose South Side Girls as a as a focus for your first big work and what was intriguing about the story you wanted to tell in that history
1: I think for me, I'm always fascinated about how people experience massive changes from the position of having the least amount of power. And children are fascinating to me as a subject of history because all of these changes happen to you, decisions are made for you, and rarely do people ever ask you what you think. And there are so many books about the Great Migration that are so beautifully written, that are so much better than my book. But my contribution intellectually was to say, well, what if we looked at it from the perspective of African-American girls and young women? How does this help us understand this moment differently? And when I first started this project, I had no idea what I was doing. The archive wasn't clear. There weren't a lot of people writing books about the history of girlhood. Um, But I had a sense that if we are able to look at this monumentous event of African Americans leaving the South and going to northern cities like Chicago, if we saw it from the perspective of girls, I knew that there were different insights on migration, on change, on urban politics, on education, that there was something different. And I think for me, my focus as a historian is, I tell the stories of people who are often um, maligned, discredited, ignored, in order to remind us that everyone has something of substance to offer at any given moment hmm.
0: so so tell our our listeners so how do you do that? How, what is the work of a project like that? How do you you, you gave us insight into how you chose it as a fascinating hmm. question, but then what do you do?
1: You read everything. Um, you become relentless in your pursuit of voices. And so for a historian, you spend a lot of time in archives. And archives can be really misleading because when you go to a library, they'll say, okay, this box has documents that are about X, Y, and Z, but you have to actually spend time with every single document to see if it's actually true. When I started my dissertation that became my book, everyone said, well, there's no way to incorporate the voices of girls. They're not in the archive. And had I taken that as true, then I would have walked away from this project. But I had to actually physically sit with the research studies of graduate students from the 1920s and with juvenile court officers and educators. And actually, a lot of girls' voices were there It's just that previous researchers didn't think they were important, so we didn't know they were there, and you just have to spend the time. And so I like to think of it, I tell my students, if you're ever on Twitter, and everyone is reacting to something on Twitter, and they think it's really funny or intriguing, there's that feeling you get where you try to find the source. What was the first tweet that made Twitter erupt? And that working backwards, and there's like this strange sense of satisfaction that you found the the (laughs) first tweet. That's my job times a million. I always try to find why did we believe this or why did we ignore this? And that's what the archive does for us.
0: So listening to you, this is a lot of work. You it's are, so much work. And you don't score with every piece of paper you read. Absolutely not. It, it sounds like you, you absorb so much more information than ever appears in the final product
1: and I think that's why it's important to think of your research as having the potential to be animated on different platforms. And this is why I think this time is so great for emerging scholars. We have our traditional disciplines, our journal articles, our books, where some of our research will appear, but we have this wonderful opportunity through podcasting, through writing editorials, through Twitter, to share our research in different places for different audiences. The best piece of advice I got um, after I published my first book was don't rush to write a second book experiment with the genre, experiment with form, do different types of writing, and see how it improves your research practice. And right after I got tenure, I joined a scripted, historically-based podcast. I started writing more for the Chronicle of Higher Education. My Twitter content became better. I started writing and communicating in different ways. And with the second book, even though it was a tough process, it's hard to write a book, I felt like my ability to communicate with new audiences um,
0: was stronger. Now, this second book seems quite different than the first book. Yes. So in addition to playing with different genres of communication, you found a different problem of interest to So Tell us about that discovery.
1: Yeah. So again, um, as someone who is from Chicago, as someone who writes about African American communities, my second book was a response to a type of conversation that I would hear often, whether it would be in you know conversations at conferences or in watching the news or listening to public radio, and it was about the health crisis and the racial implications of the health crisis. And one of the things that was to really bother me about conversations about why um, communities of color um, had higher rates of obesity and other food-related conditions was that, you know, people ate too much fast food that was the premise that everyone was operating from. But I thought to myself, well, surely there has to be a history of how fast food saturated certain communities the way that they did. And so I wanted to provide a social history of the obesity crisis, of a backstory to why we have food deserts, and to talk about the complicated ways that communities that are disenfranchised have to make really constrained choices and fast food provide something more than just an inexpensive meal. It has created an infrastructure in some communities that I think the state should. So if your first health screening for diabetes is happening because of a fast food company, then it's really hard to make the case that that fast food company is bad. If it's the only employer in a town, then it's a really hard case to make that you shouldn't patronize it. And so in thinking about what fast food provides, that's not food. I hope I can open up a more sophisticated conversation about government subsidies, about the nature of capitalism, about work in the 21st century to say, like, if we're going to tell people to not eat food that we deem unhealthy then what are we providing so that people can have as many choices as possible
0: Mm -hmm. and the role of fast food in the socio-economic development of some communities is non-trivial during this time oh it's it's
1: it's key and it creates um a cohort of african-american millionaires and they do a lot of philanthropic work for historically black colleges for african-american cultural organizations they provide this opportunity through this vehicle called fast food so it becomes very complicated and more than anything else what was the real challenge of moving from a university press to a trade press is how do I talk to people with no jargon um, with a good sense of story my book I think is a little unusual because popular books about race are usually about housing or education or healthcare. And this is really kind of a broad view of capitalism. And I think people are really uncomfortable with critiques of capitalism. But hopefully, I communicate it in a way that you know people don't have to agree with it, but that they, they feel comfortable engaging with that question. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of our colleagues are moving back and forth between traditional research and scholarship inside their field, judged by the normal academic standards. And, and trying to have impact to uh, greater so societal uh, uh, settings. It sounds like you're grappling with that. And when you, uh, how, how do you think in, in your career terms of what are the key audiences for you to, to address and what's important to you as a scholar on that side?
1: I think at the center of it is, you know, our research interests in order for them to be sustainable over the course of a long career we have to have a sense of why do they ground not only our works but ourselves you know for me it's a real sense of urgency to try to create an opportunity for a more sophisticated, historically based conversation about what we struggle with today, whether it be racism, um, xenophobia, social inequality, sexism, whatever that is, I want to help people get to the best understanding of it, no matter who they are. And so there's some work that we do in the classroom that's animated by the fact that we're together in this community for 16 weeks. We are all reading the same things. We can bring our perspectives. But for the majority of people in the world who do not attend any type of higher education, let alone complete high school, they also need access to this information in ways that are really clear and purposeful for their own lives and their choices. And so I think that the number one priority is how many people can I talk to about these research interests so that they are as informed as possible when they vote, when they talk to their neighbors, when they raise their kids, when they weigh in on an issue. And that is the responsibility, I think, of each and every scholar. And if you don't think that's your responsibility, God bless you because (laughs) you will always grapple with a world that you feel um, is unable to meet the challenges of the day and you have done nothing about it
0: switch gears a bit so give us a sense of of your daily structure and and how you as an academic you you have teaching as we said you have your own scholarship there are various service activities that we all engage in how do you make everything work
1: this has taken years um, for me to feel like I know how to balance and juggle I think that some of I have a natural predisposition um, towards a lot of energy, which I think is a real um, unearned privilege and advantage. Um, but for those who, who don't have that, um, I think it's about understanding that there will have to be a shifting priority and being comfortable with that, trying to be the very best teacher, the very best researcher, the very best public intellectual, the very best committee member all at the same time is not a sustainable practice. Understanding that there are periods in your career or even throughout the semester where a priority has to shift and being clear with people on why that priority is shifting. Setting really good boundaries. I'm a big believer in getting up early and starting before the email monster arises. So if I have a project done, like when I was finishing up the revisions for my book, I will wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I will write from four to six. That is not a sustainable practice 12 months out of the year, but my book will be the priority. And if students need to talk to me and I'm traveling, I think students are always a top priority because they are engaged in a process of discovery. And any time we interrupt that discovery process because we can't attend to that need, I think we can do some really serious long-term damage. And so if a student needs to find me. They can't meet in office hours. I'm busy. We're Skyping we're taking, you get a Google phone number if you don't want students to have your own phone number and you find a way to communicate with them and then other times you can have an extra two hours of office hours but being flexible in how you meet your demands I think is really really key and I also think that people will give you really bad advice about letting your teaching suffer because oh you don't get tenure on teaching so ignore the teaching and only do the research I think that's such a damaging way of looking at your career. Because if you're not building up your teaching practice, you could be one of the many people who become tenured and are just really bad educators. And that's not, that's not fun. No one's having fun when you're a bad teacher. You're not having fun because you know you're doing a bad job, and the students are not having fun because they're in this horrible class. So I think you have to just understand the priorities
0: will shift. So tell us what you're working on right now. What's, what's really exciting? What's the most interesting thing you find yourself doing right now?
1: Well, I am fortunate. My book is coming out in January. So now that I've wrapped one project, it's always on to the next one. So I'm currently um, developing a proposal for a book about higher education. My new book will look at this question about higher education and social inequality. And I think for many of us who have been engaged in the life of the university for the past 50 years, we have have believed that opening up the door to the university can radically change some of the divides, whether it's class, whether it's race, whether it's gender. I believe that is true, and I wonder if there are more creative and efficient ways for universities to close that divide because so much of the investment in diversity and opening opportunity hinges on the success and failures of individuals. But if there were structural and systemic changes to how higher education engages with the larger world, maybe they're more effective. And so some of the things I'm thinking about is voluntary tax programs, um, wages, um, trade policies, the work of the university, the hospitals, and the larger community. Are these better ways of actually closing the gap than admission and scholarships and programs? And it's a really tough thing because I feel like I've been the poster child for opportunity for a very long time, and I believe in it, and at the same time, the more and more I think about it, can we imagine more radical and imaginative ways of responding to these inequalities that we study and that we are concerned about? But at the end of the day, we often concentrate within The parameters of the institution.
0: I can't wait to see this work. Neither can I. (laughs) I have to get working on it. (laughs) Good luck and thank you so much for being with us for these few minutes. We appreciate it. My pleasure.